Hey, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Ashley. And you're listening to All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We want to create a space for all bodies to come together authentically and purposefully to discuss various areas that impact us on a cultural and relational level. We believe that all bodies and all foods are welcome. We would love for you to join us on this journey. Let's learn together. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of All Bodies, All Foods. Ashley and Sam are here, and we have a wonderful special guest with us today. Jessica Elwert-Conkle is a licensed creative arts therapist in drama therapy in the state of New York. Um, She works with clients on their relationship with their bodies, with a special concentration working with binge eating disorder, as well as anorexia and bulimia. She's anti-diet, anti-fitness industry, and anti-BMI focused. Um, She works on body acceptance and fat liberation and offers in-person therapeutic cooking classes, which I really am interested in learning more about. So Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're so excited to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. So Jess... Could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in the mental health field and why eating disorders? Yeah, I um, found drama therapy um, at a time in my life where being a working actor in New York City wasn't working. And I discovered a way to bring together the things that I believed so deeply in inside of the art of performance, which was an opportunity for education and an opportunity for creativity. And bringing that together inside of the mental health field has really been, um, I had a interesting relationship with food and eating my whole life personally. Um, and also just witnessing, uh, in my family and with my friends and people in my life, that same interesting relationship with food and eating, um, brought me to the idea of eating disorder work. Um, and drama therapy is such a specific modality that really works with embodiment Um, And I think bringing the work to the body for someone with an eating disorder who is inherently disconnected from their body really is just like a no brainer. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I really was like this, I can't say no to either of these options. And um, it really has proven to be, uh, for me, a a healing journey for my own experience um, as a clinician, but also watching my clients and the patients that I worked with over the years um, who, you know, sort of feel like drama therapy is weird. And it it kind of feels like out of the box and Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it doesn't even feel like therapy. And then all of a sudden there's this therapeutic intervention that sort of sneaks up and it, it always works. Yeah. Wow. So for our listeners out there, I I know there are probably folks out there thinking, what is drama therapy? (laughs) Yeah. Would you be able to just maybe describe it? Like if I, if I came in for a session with you, what would that even look like? 
Yeah. Um, people ask that a lot. Like what is drama therapy? Um, I don't always know either, uh, from moment (laughs) to moment. It really, um, it really metamorphosizes itself, uh, in, in the work as it's happening. So, I guess like the elevator speech, if we got in the elevator and we're going up to like the fifth floor and it's like, Jess, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a therapist. And somebody says, what is that? The coin is, it is a, a therapeutic intervention tool that brings anything creative to the process. So what we wouldn't ordinarily might sit across from each other and chat about and process through language. Yeah. In traditional therapy settings, we as a drama therapy intervention might do something a little bit more metaphor based. We might do something with imagination. We might do something that pulls things back into the body. Um, We might work with something like um, imagery uh, or we might go completely wacky. I'm a big puppet person, so we might work with puppets. Um, We might also do stuff with written text. If you're a person who sings and you're really interested in using your voice as a way to understand therapeutic change, we'll do that. So it sort of is like a all hands on deck kind of big grab of whatever feels important or available. And then let's say you're a person who doesn't do creative, right? My mother has always been a person who's like, I'm not very creative, which is a lie. (laughs) Um, And uh, that's also okay. You don't have to be a creative person to find creativity. Um, We as children, and it really goes back to when you are a child, right? So when you are a child using play as your work, play Mm -hmm. as your way of understanding the world. It's kind of going back to that rudimentary understanding to find therapeutic understanding for today. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, Jess, I've done a lot of work in play therapy and worked a lot with young ones. And a lot of what you're saying sounds a lot like what we've done, you know, and, and just kind of what you're saying, whatever different type of creative avenue, you know, right. Have to, Yeah. And it doesn't have to be for kids either. That's another thing that I hear a lot is like, oh, this would be really great for children. And it is. I personally don't work with children. And um, I'm working with a client right now who um, really is struggling with like accessing um, emotions and loves to draw. So what are we doing? We're drawing things that represent emotion and then using them as a way to find relationship between the emotions, putting them on top of each other, these drawings, right? So there's this idea of like projecting the experience outside of the self that actually gets you more control so that you can then be far more challenged inside what you're trying to discover. Mm, Yeah. It makes the emotional experience much more manageable. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's That's fascinating. Which, yeah. And it also makes the body more manageable, right? So mm-hmm. if we're going to talk about this from under the lens of body work or under the lens of working with folks in fat bodies, um, it allows the accessibility of the instrument that I have been disconnected from for yes. decades, yeah. right? As a patient, it allows me to then feel like I can touch into it a little bit, find a little bit of home, find a little bit of safety and security inside of this instrument that has been demonized, villainized, scrutinized um, my whole entire life if I'm a person who's been in this marginalized uh, community. Yeah, right, right. 
Would you say, Jess, is there sort of an ideal client that would really benefit from drama therapy? Or do you really feel like it could benefit anyone if they'd be open and willing to give it a chance? It really is honestly available to anybody. Um, I think sometimes it can feel a bit like a hard nut to crack for someone who is particularly rigid in their presentation or someone who um, is overly intellectual in their Mm -hmm. approach to therapy. Um, But I know my drama therapist would be like, that's a perfect person to bring into drama therapy because (laughs) that's like, there's a real breakdown that can happen inside of that. Um, But yeah, it really is accessible for any and all populations um, and any age, any ability as well. Um, And it really allows for um, the patient or the client to drive the work too, right? So it's not me prescribing mm-hmm. um, a modality onto someone. It's not, you know, where it's like CBT and um, DBT is wonderful and it works really well. And it's a bit of a prescription, right? So yeah. here we're going to use this idea and this theory and we're going to try. Whereas I'm like, what are you into? Oh, you really like, you know, Pokemon? Great. Let's use that. Or, yeah. wow, you really like the Jonas Brothers or you're really into planting. Whatever you're into, I'm going to create something out of that to work with you on as opposed okay. to I want to prescribe something at you. Yeah. So individualized. I love that. Mm-hmm. And flexible, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Lots of flexibility. And, and fun. It's actually and fun. fun. <laughs> it does sound fun. I want to try some of it. So, um, so Jess, you are anti-diet anti-BMI. And, you know, I thought maybe this, I was hoping we could talk about specifically eating disorders and fat bodies. I know that's sort of a passion of yours. And I'm wondering, um, we know that eating disorders can happen to anyone, but there's certain populations that have different experiences with getting assessed, getting treatment, getting recovery. And so given your expertise, what do you feel the biggest challenges are for fat bodies who are on their recovery journey, specifically getting assessed and getting a diagnosis? Maybe we can start there. What do you see as the the biggest challenges? Um, And how can, what can we do, you know, mental health providers, what can we do to improve? First, I want to start by saying that I use the word fat as a reclaiming term. I, for those of you who aren't noticing me, I live in a fat body. I have most of my life. Um, and I have decided to personally reach in, grab that word and keep it for myself. Um, a lot of people have different terms that they use to describe their bodies. None of them are wrong. Um, and my experience with fatness has brought me to be using this term. So I'm going to continue to use it throughout our conversation. And I just want to make sure that people understand my platform as I'm talking about it. Um, I think some of the biggest challenges obviously are, um, even just being believed, uh, that I have, uh, as a person, a fat mm-hmm. body that I have an eating disorder mm-hmm. and that's in both directions, right? So not only does that come from the medical community, um, or from family and friends, but it comes from the self as well. Yeah. Uh, there are so yeah. many, uh, people who live in fat bodies and have experienced fatness throughout their lives. And we all know the narrative. It's your fault. Something right. you've done or haven't done, or didn't do well enough, or forgot, or failed at, uh, that has brought you to this place. And shame on you. Uh, 
So mm-hmm. the next step is for you to try again and then try again and try again and try again. Right. And so what we are learning in both the clinical aspect, but also as fat humans in the world is how much of this is really our own responsibility and how much of it isn't and what that line is. And for most folks, that line comes inside of the relationship with food and eating. And there is a, um, there's a common misconception of what, of course, an eating disorder looks like, right? So if I close my eyes and I think about someone with an eating disorder, we have a particular view in mind, right? Traditionally, it is a younger woman, female presenting uh, in a small body, right? Emaciated body who doesn't eat and maybe over exercises or abuses laxatives, right? That's Mm -hmm. the traditional understanding of an eating disorder. And and affluent usually is the Yes. The misconception. Um, And then, and usually she's white, right? Right. So this is also um, a disease of privilege. Well, and we're saying she a lot too, usually. Exactly. 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 Right. So we're also recognizing and demanding that there be recognition that this experience comes in many different uh, forms. And so if if we're talking about the fat body in particular, we also have to talk about, um, bodies in black indigenous and persons of color communities, right? So that's also a very big piece inside of the fat liberation movement, right? We, we, as people in fat bodies have also our own hierarchy of bodies, right? When we talk about bodies, uh, everybody's got one. Everybody has one. It's the common denominator, right? Um, uh, Sherry Renee. Nope. Oh, I forgot her name. Uh, it'll come to me. She talks about the body hierarchy, and it's really important understanding because it's the common denominator that we all have as humans. And then we start to make sense of it in this mm-hmm. sort of ladder system. Yeah, And the latter system uh, is about my body being more able or less able than the next body, my body being bigger or smaller, my body being more athletic, my body having more capability, my body having more privilege. And inside the fat community, that's the same thing right? We now have different terms for fatness. There's super fat, small fat, big fat, infinity fat, and people having less access depending on their fatness. And we owe it to the fat community to make sure that we're putting out and putting in front the voices that need to be heard. And those are those people in black, indigenous, and person of color bodies. And it's really important to hear their stories and to hear about how fat phobia is rooted in um, racism and running away from these bodies that we were at one point as Eurocentric individuals deeming as villains. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like the basis inside of this. But then mm-hmm. on top of that, we have um, the diet community, yeah, which is an industry that is so enormous mm-hmm. and has so much money yes. uh, and so many big hands and so many deep pockets that we feel um, and we are sort of up against a big monster. Yeah. Um, I often feel when I'm working with folks in fat bodies in my work, like I'm dismantling their own internalized fat phobia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have it. 
it mm-hmm. is systemic. Yeah. Um, and I think when we talk about um, it from a clinical perspective, like what can someone in a small body who isn't a clinician, what can they do inside of this relationship is to look at their own experience of fat phobia, mm-hmm. right? Where, where is it for you? Um, how do you see fatness and be honest with yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, do you associate it with, uh, socioeconomic status? Do you associate it with disgust? Yeah. Um, do you associate it with an epidemic? Yeah. Um, and, and if you do, how do you dismantle that for yourself so that when you show up in these spaces, you can also acknowledge your own privilege. And it's mm-hmm. not enough to just say, I'm privileged in this white, thin body. It's nice to meet you. How can I support you in your eating disorder? It's not enough to Mm -hmm. say that. Um, There is an inherent mistrust inside of communities um, in fat bodies to be with someone who doesn't live in a fat body because you don't understand. Um, You don't get it. You don't know. You can't, you can't even fathom. Um, And so you have to, as a person Mm -hmm. in a thin body Mm -hmm. in a clinician role, Recognize that you're going to be in the room with that nine times yeah. out of 10. Yeah. I had a client recently who we were looking for a dietitian for them. And the prerequisite was I will not work with a dietitian who is in a thin body. Yeah. I will not because I just, yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't, si- I can't step over that. I can't sidestep that that's a piece of this puzzle. I have to have somebody who, when I look at them, I see myself and I yeah. get it. And it is a representation that is few and far between in the community. There aren't a lot of fat clinicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And specifically in the RD community, registered dietitian. Correct. I mean, yeah, yeah. That can be quite the challenge to find. It's really important to have these conversations with your client to, to be able to speak openly about, it is. about these issues. And I'm so glad you brought up internalized weight stigma. And then I was thinking to myself on top of it, some folks have internalized binge eating disorder stigma that they're trying to unlearn. Yeah. You know, I, um, I also, there's an opportunity inside of this challenge to challenge the internalized phobia of your thin clients as well. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, not all of my clients live in fat bodies um, and I'll have conversations with them where we're talking about, you know, fatness and we're talking about the villainization of it or what fatness really means or what it would really mean if I lived in a larger body than the one that I do. And I bring my own fatness into that conversation. And I say, yeah. you know, what would it what does it feel like for you to have this conversation with me? A person living in a fat body, right? And I think that that is also a piece inside of the collective treatment process that needs to be um, Mm -hmm. recognized and talked about. Mm -hmm. When we have combined communities in different body sizes, and there's a lot of conversation in those group therapy experiences around fatness, recognizing that there are fat community members who are embodying the thing that the rest of the community is actively running away from and how do we as a clinical staff hold space for that make room for that conversation let it be known um, so that it can be supported and held appropriately i think that's really an important piece the other thing that i think is important inside of internalized fat phobia is to insist and this is a bit 
I'm going to be a bit controversial for a second, Mm -hmm. is to insist that when somebody is talking about their experience of their own body and um, how they have all rules for themselves internally, right? Like it's okay for you to be fat. It's okay for you. I I admire that you can have that kind of experience in your life and be um, successful and confident in your fat body. I can't do that for me. Yeah. And this idea that it is separate is not yeah. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it is not true. It is not true that you can have different phobia and rules for your own body that are up against fatness and not let that be true to your fat friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reality yeah. is it is the same and you have to come to terms with mm-hmm. that. Um, and it is a hard truth to come to terms with mm-hmm. because you don't want to be that. You don't want to mm-hmm. be that judgmental or that rude or that mean or that villainous against someone's fatness. But your fat friend is embodying the thing that you are saying isn't good enough for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is a piece inside of the process that I think is super, super important. And it's yeah. controversial and people don't really like me when I talk about it in that way. Um, but I am a, I am okay with that. It's just yeah. really, um, it's key. I think it's well, really key. I would say, you know, if people don't like you, we don't talk about this enough. Um, I've been working within the eating disorder industry now for five years. And that what I was a clinician that really worked in trauma prior to, to kind of coming into this field. That was a piece of just even working with my own internalized messaging. I live in a fat body too, Jess, and like, and always have <laughs> my whole life. And so I know messages that I've given myself. I know messages that I've heard in the community, cultural messages, diet messages. And I was shocked at the work I had to do to come to the place to authentically work with my clients in whatever body size they were, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's so imperative for us to for us as the clinicians, as the ones that are providing this safe space to be honest and authentic and transparent with ourselves and the messaging and the experiences that we've had that have brought us to this point. It's not fair. And I don't, I, fair is a term we made up as yeah. humans, but it isn't. It's not fair to um, ask someone across the room who's sitting on your couch to do work you haven't been willing to do yourself. Um, I'm really authentic in that way. I've never asked anyone to participate in something that I either I'm not actively participating in, in my own personal life or have already participated in and feel really strongly about, right? So um, having those big boundary conversations with your family, when your family is talking about your body or your family's making comments about food on your plate, I tell them, these are the boundaries that I have personally been able to use in my life. This is the way it has worked for me. Give it a shot. See how it works for you. Um, And I think that's a piece that is also uh, really crucial inside of the treatment process for folks in fat bodies is how to really support after treatment ends and they walk back into the world still in a fat body. Yeah. There's this, there's this disconnect that happens when you finish treatment and you're in a more recovered space uh, in a thin body 
walking out into the world, and when you are in a recovered space, walking out in the world in a fat body. Because immediately when you step out, there is automatic oppression, there's automatic stigma, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. automatic anti-fat bias that is mm-hmm. that is reminding this person on a regular basis mm-hmm. that what they're experiencing in their life is wrong. And there's a piece inside of that treatment process, I think, that we owe them. It's almost like an added layer of protection, an armor, um, literal terms and words that they can use. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that when I work with clients in fat bodies and we talk about statistics mm-hmm. and I give them like actual, when somebody says this, say this, yeah, give yeah, them yeah. this, these words in this order that yeah. will help support you intellectually. That will help support you in language. Mm-hmm. Because when we talk about this, much like when we talk about trauma, right, we need language to right. be able to feel like we can understand what we've been through and mm-hmm. how to say it to other people in a way that is full of confidence and security. Mm-hmm. So giving language to our patients and our clients so that they can say, oh, right. When my mom makes that comment Mm -hmm. about, you know, the salad that she had because she hasn't eaten all day, right. I can make this comment and I can be, I can feel better about my recovery as a result of this line that I learned. Right. That's so helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if we could like kind of do an example of that. So I I know all three of us have kind of, ha- we've had experience both in the outpatient private practice setting. We've all had experience in higher levels of care, which for our listeners, that might mean IOP, intensive outpatient, day treatment, um, or residential. So let's say we've, we have a client, Jess, who, um, who maybe came in because she she was experiencing moments of both binge eating and moments of restriction because the world has told her that she needs to restrict and kind of create a different body and she's in a fat body all right and and maybe I'm particularly thinking of a client I've worked with in the past but um and by that I mean I definitely am um, but so, <laughs> so she discharges and has done incredible work, um, in, in, you know, treatment and kind of like claiming herself and understanding her body and understanding who she is and mom and dad are at home and mom and dad really thought that, that this eating disorder treatment, um, was going to also teach her how to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was going to stop binging. Um, ah, that old chestnut. Maybe you'll get know. out and be smaller. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what might be some language we could give her specifically? Um, great question. So yeah. my first suggestion is a very large and definitive, clear boundary. Okay. And the first one is no more comments about my body yes. and no comments about the food that I put on my plate. Yes. Those are the first two. So yes. what that means is you don't tell me that my body looks good. You don't tell me that my body looks bad. There is no body comment at all. Mm -hmm. You could say that sweater looks nice. You could say, I really like how you did your hair today. I -hmm. really love those glasses or those earrings or those pants are really great tweed, whatever. But we're Mm -hmm. not going to talk about that. You look good. You look bad. You look Mm -hmm. fat. You look thin. No more of that. 
-hmm. and also no more comments about my food, right? So Mm -hmm. how much I put on my plate, when I last ate, what I am eating, why didn't I eat, why am I eating again, didn't you just finish, no comments about food. So those are the first two that are like out of the gate, absolute no more. Yes. Um, And the other thing that I think is really important to teach and remind is how poor people are at respecting boundaries. (laughs) They suck at it. And the way that I like to describe it is like if you've ever had a kid, it's like when you're trying to teach your kid how to sleep on their own after Mm -hmm. you've rocked them and, you know, held them for a certain time. Right. For anybody who's had a baby, that is hell. When you are trying to get to that part where the kid can sleep on their own, right? It's, there's these boundaries that you have to put and the kid is going to scream and while out about it. People will also mess up, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally with yeah. boundaries. Yeah. So what I suggest is after you making those two very clear boundaries that you remind the person, you're probably going to forget and that's okay. I will be here to remind you. Mm-hmm. And then reminding them. So next day I'm having a bowl of cereal. My mother says to me, I really think blah, blah, blah. Hey, I just want to remind you, we had this conversation, no comments about my food. And the reason that that is also really important is because people truly do not realize how often they make comments to fat people about food and eating and their bodies. Mm -hmm. They really don't know because it's such an internalized and stigmatized systematic thing. It's like breathing. Also, people think that they're doing it out of health concern and people think they're doing it out of being kind. My mm-hmm. mother used to say things to me like, oh, you look like you've lost whatever weight or something. And I'm like, I haven't. And also don't say that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I, I thought it was a compliment. It isn't. Mm-hmm. So just a gentle reminder. I just, hey, I want to remind you. Remember, we had that conversation. Here I am reminding you again. And the other thing about boundaries that's really important is to make sure that your voice stays the same. Right. Mm. So when I have that conversation about my body or I have that conversation about food, you'll notice that my tone doesn't change. Mm -hmm. I'm not putting any energy into it. I'm not putting any emotion into it. There's something about when you when you place a very firm boundary and you make it very specific. If you don't change your tone, it seems to hit different. I don't know why. I'm sure there's research about it, but it really works. So those are the two big like out of the gate. Do these two things. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that I think is important inside of this is the understanding of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. First Mm -hmm. of all, the term microaggression. That's a term that is new to a lot of people, an understanding of what that actually looks like inside of a relationship with someone with a fat body. I'll give you an example from my own life. There was a day I was out walking with some friends and I was really struggling because I was having some problems with one of my joints. And I was like, I don't really think I can make this walk, guys. I really, you know, and just sort of like a little bit of conversation about it. And someone in a thin body wanted to know more information about what was going on. And I didn't really want to talk about it. And then that conversation was talked about more and insisted some more. And then when I finally told them what was going on, Mm -hmm. then it was uh, a conversation about, oh yeah, I know that happens to me too because of X, Y, and Z. So there was this idea of like, 
I'm experiencing this fat body experience. And now you are going to take that experience and make it about you and your thin body. Right. So then it became this like switch around that didn't feel good to me because then it made me feel like what I was experiencing wasn't real, honest or valid. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, 10 years ago, I would have never had that kind of language to understand that. I would have just walked away from that being like, well, that felt kind of crappy and I don't really know why. But then I had the language to then go back to the person later and say, hey, can we have that conversation where we talk a little bit about that interaction we had and how it made me feel, what it did to my experience and how wrong that is. So that's another piece here is to be able to know when it's happening. Yes. Mm -hmm. We in fat bodies don't. Exactly. We don't necessarily know what's happening either because it's been happening our whole lives. It's in the air that we breathe. It's the water we're swimming in. So to be able to understand in our lives when that is occurring and then how to go back and talk about it. And then the last thing that I want to offer is if we're in a culture in the family where talking to elders is not on the table, right? So I come mm. from the Midwest. I'm a white girl giving boundaries to my mom. Not a problem in my culture that is absolutely lifted up and encouraged in other cultures. It is not. Mm-hmm. So to be really understanding of that as well and flipping the script a little bit. So what I've been able to do with some of my clients who um, live in cultures where it is not appropriate to say anything to grandma, to mom, to auntie, to anybody who's older than me about my body, right, is to understand how it's their own internalized experience of fat phobia. And mm-hmm. so that's an internal boundary of how can I, as a person, internally protect myself from whatever someone is saying about body, about food, about my body, because it is not appropriate for me to say something to my great aunt at this, you know, um, family reunion, because it's disrespectful. So I'm not going to say anything to her, but what I am going to do is internally and emotionally, I'm taking a step back and looking at her life her experience, what she's commenting on inside of her own fatness or her own body awareness and realize it's a projection onto me and I don't have to take it. Yeah. I love that so much that I feel like you just kind of blew my mind there with that internal boundary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope that that is a tool that somebody today listening to this can start implementing that has those experiences. Yeah, it's really it's really key because, you know, you don't want to not go to the family reunion and you certainly don't want to continue to hold resentment toward your great aunt who has fat phobia. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So how do you continue to have that relationship and be authentic inside of it and also not go up against what you believe is the culture of your family? Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's taking on a lot. That is. Yeah. When all you really want is just the potato salad and be left alone. (laughs) Right, Like eat the potato salad, feel left alone inside of it and continue to have that relationship with your family. That's so important. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. This reminds me of so many, the other episodes we've had Ashley on cultural humility and how important it is. We just had an episode recently with Fatima on eating disorders in Muslim populations. And, you know, that those direct boundary setting techniques are just not it's really not the way to go. Um, and we right, have, to, right. yeah, we have to take culture into consideration. 
Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. It's so important. Yeah. Speaking of families, um, you know, there are times, you know, we talked before about, you know, the family members who they, it's kind of tricky because they try to shift the focus on health saying, well, I just want you to be healthy. And there's this, this belief that it's like, you have to lose weight to do that. And there's such a push with that. I'm just curious how you might work with family members in a family therapy type setting if, if that's what's coming up. And is that something that you do? Do you bring in the family as well, specifically kind of in your private practice? And what does that even look like? <laughs> Begrudgingly, I'll bring in family. Okay. Um, <laughs> families always give me a lot of angina. And um, because there's just so much going on, um, I really love to empower my clients to do it on their own. Um, And of course, if it's necessary, it's necessary. So inside of that, I I have noticed firstly that um, when you bring in a family experience, then and only then do I really feel the hierarchical experience inside of the clinician patient relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, when a family comes in, it can go either way where they either feel superior to your expertise Mm -hmm. or they feel inferior to your expertise. And as a result, there's really this like absolute divide Mm -hmm. between us and them. And I feel like that can be used to your advantage as the clinician in the space to really hook elbows with your patient or your client and be speaking from a very um, clinical lens sometimes mm-hmm. about what, what we're talking about and why we are approaching this in this way. And mm-hmm. also what we end up doing essentially is throwing up a mirror to the family legacy of fat phobia. Um, and the need and necessary, um, evil of having to look at their own relationship with fatness and their bodies. Um, and that can take a lot of, you know, dismantling. Um, but outside of that, I find that giving all of the tools to the client and the patient is key and not saving any of it for yourself. Right. So I want my patient or client to walk away feeling just as much of an expert inside of it as they think I am. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like I need to save anything for me. If I find an article that's really interesting and it's really, you know, bolstering up this theory that I have about body set point, I'm giving it to all my clients. Read this. I just learned this, highlight this thing, say this and that, right? I want them to have all the tools that I have so that they can be an expert in their own recovery and an expert in their own fat liberation. I think Mm -hmm. that's really important because people are always looking for um, statistics. People are always looking for, uh, you know, the science of it all, which is laughable because all of diet culture is based in science that has so many holes in it anyway. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think um, empowering the patient inside of the family relationship is key. And then inside of, uh, outside of that is to really just continue to champion the theory that you can be healthy even when you're fat. 
mm-hmm. and to talk yes. about what health really means. Mm-hmm. So if a, if a family is coming to talk to me, a mom, a dad, a, a, a spouse even, right, or a partner, mm-hmm. and they're like, I'm worried about my uh, loved one's health. Great. Exactly what are you worried about? Mm-hmm. 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 What health marker are you worried about? Because the thing that's cool about Renfrew is we have all the health markers, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk. Are we talking about cholesterol? Are we talking about um, kidneys? Are we talking about blood work? Are we talking about, you know, what exactly are we referring to? Mm-hmm. Because nine times out of 10, it's not really what you're talking about. You're really talking about something else. And it's really in, encouraging to be able to just sort of knock those things down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another piece that I think is really important is if you're going to sit inside of these conversations to really be clear, yeah, consistent yeah. in your messaging and confident in yes. what you're saying. Yeah. If that means that you have to have notes, have notes because again, you are, you are pushing up against decades and decades of messaging in a different direction. Um, and also a lot of times you'll end up meeting a family member who has an undiagnosed eating disorder Mm -hmm. in which Mm -hmm. case that's, you know, and so we as clinicians who work in eating disorders knows what it means to be in the room with an eating disorder. Right. So you'll feel it show up inside of the, you know, family member as well. And to understand when you are negotiating with a disorder and when you are actually giving fact. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. I just want to say, I think that that's really helpful. And, um, you know, and thinking about just my experiences, even bringing the family into the room and, um, and sometimes I've done, I mean, you all probably have done this too. We've done meals with the families, um, just one particular family in general. And, and you can really see even what comes up in that respect as well. And, um, just the the education piece I think is so critical because I mean, you know, often they want to know they well, And, and I mentioned that I worked with kids before this too, but like I would work with kids, you know, back in earlier in my career and it would sometimes feel like the parents would bring the child in and, and kind of say, fix them. Right. And it's like, oh, there's, there's so much, here. Yes. (laughs) There's so much in this family system. So I like what you said about putting the mirror up really to the family system and educating them, not from a place of like contention or frustration with them, educating them because the messaging that we've all received for years, like you said, decades and decades has, has, been rooted in this kind of like weight stigma, fat phobia place. So the education I think is just critical to them. Um, It is. And, you know, you brought up family meals and I really love um, sometimes working with that with my clients around what is a meal? What does the family meal look like? What is, um, what do you remember your family meals to look like? What did meal time like what was the whole vibe going on there Mm -hmm. and like how much information can we glean just from the vibe? Right. And then, um, and then how can we adjust that? I often see, um, you know, working with adult, uh, clients, I'll see, um, how it's rooted in their, uh, 
childhood, how they experience mealtime now as an adult. Um, yeah. You know, I don't really cook that often and I don't really keep food in the house that much. And we talk about the family experience and there's this realization that, wow, like we didn't really have food in the house growing up. Like it, you know, it, and where's that stem and, and how do we break that legacy? Mm-hmm. Um, I think is super, super important to the process. And also we talk about therapeutic cooking there's a real baseline inside of that, which starts with what do you know? What is comfort to you? Um, You know, there's a lot of shame inside of the ability or lack thereof to cook in the eating Mm. disorder treatment process. I don't know Mm. how to cook. I only know how to make three things. Um, I don't want to know how to cook. I don't like cooking. Um, And, you know, offering an opportunity to be like, you teach me a recipe that you love, something that means something to you, even if it is this cereal with this bowl in this, you know, room with this kind of milk. Great. Let's start there. And so I find when I first start with the therapeutic cooking, you tell me and you're going to show me and I'm going to be the student and I'm going to learn because you learn so much about what their understanding is and and where their emotions are inside of that process and then how do we build off of that how do we add um skill and comfort and accessibility to what cooking is um and what it can be for you as a person in recovery from the stigma yeah Mm -hmm. and i just want to say when you take that role as the student and as the learner from the client um that also gives them voice to their experience that what they know is okay. Like what they're doing, like they're not doing anything wrong, right? Like they're not, they're not being wrong inherently because they only know this dish or whatever. Yeah. And I also, to that point, um, when you work, when I've worked with folks in fat bodies inside of that experience, right, there's this inherent shame inside of what I'm eating. Um, and to, to tear down the shame and find the nostalgia and the comfort in it um, is also really empowering. Um, I have this sandwich that I used to make when I was a kid um, and it's peanut butter, honey, and dill pickles. And it was just stuff that I had found around the house when I was in middle school and it sounded really good to me. And it is a sandwich to this day that like, if I'm feeling particularly homesick or I'm feeling really nostalgic or I want something really homey, I will make myself this sandwich. And it probably sounds gross to some folks or it might sound, you know, rudiment, whatever it is, but there's something about my, at that time in my life when I was experimenting with food, when I was learning how to do stuff on my own, when I was finding my independence and finding comfort, that means a lot. To, and it's all wrapped up in a sandwich. And yeah. that, what that also does is it dismantles the idea for folks in fat bodies that food is just supposed to be fuel. That's not right. true. It yeah. can't be that way. Um, it isn't that way. And how yeah. do we allow it to also be passionate and fun and exciting and okay? And yeah. without the shame inside of, I'm really excited about this cupcake. Be excited about the cupcake. You're allowed to have joy inside of eating and be fat. Yeah. Mm, I love love that so much. I do. Yeah, it's cool. I can't believe we're out of time. I'm so upset about this because there are so many other questions we have 
maybe for another season. Um, but thank you so much, Jess. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you and both. I loved it. I hope you come back and maybe in, in another season. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for joining today. This was a really informative episode. And if you found any value in it or you loved this episode, you can support us by subscribing, rating, leaving a review, or sharing with others. If you want more, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Our handle is at Renfrew Center. For free education, events, trainings, webinars, resources, and blogs, head over to our website, www.renforcenter.com. And if you have any comments or questions you'd like us to answer in a future episode, be sure to email them to podcast at renforcenter.com. I hope you join us next time on All Bodies, All Foods. Thank you for listening with us today on All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We're looking forward to you joining us next time as we continue these conversations.